Welcome to Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies, a podcast series brought to you by the American Society of Hematology and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, as well as the France Foundation. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, Abbey, Daiichi Sankyo, Pharmacyclics, and Illumina. As medical professionals, it's important that we stay up to date on the latest developments in genomic testing and understand how to interpret those results, as well as select the appropriate therapeutic agents to manage hematologic malignancies. This podcast will focus on therapeutic testing for lymphoma. I am your host, Dr. Sanjay Janeja, and I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I'm joined by Dr. David Russler Germain, who is an MD-PhD. He's an instructor in the Division of Oncology at Washington. University in St. Louis in the Siteman Cancer Center. David, it's very good to have you. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Sanjay. So we talk a lot in oncology in general, but especially in the community setting of staying on top of the kind of genomic and NGS things that relate to treatment, and especially if it's first line. So one of the biggest questions that we should ask right now, are there new next generation sequencing or NGS tests that may dictate first line therapies on lymphomas uh, differently than how we kind of traditionally know maybe five or 10 years ago? So the short answer is yes. And there are a few specific disease subtypes that we'll go into today in which next generation sequencing or genomic testing can inform first-line therapy. But that's not the rule. That's actually less common the case. And we'll talk about DLBCL, mantle cell lymphoma, and other cases. Um, and in the majority of cases, we actually don't need to rely on these tests to decide a first-line therapy treatment. Well, good. I'm looking forward to being able to discuss where it matters, but I think that's reassuring for, for many. Um, and then, of course, I think we're going to get to it, but it's very important, you know, and I remember hearing previous podcasts when I was in training, an excisional biopsy is still the thing that you want to do, correct, when it comes to diagnosis, especially if NGS isn't as big as the histopathology. Is it still an excisional biopsy that's usually preferred if you're really suspecting lymphoma? The answer is yes. A safe excisional biopsy is what I'd add. And I think we all have seen patients who don't have time to wait for a surgery referral and a core biopsy is certainly reasonable, especially with expert hematopathologists analyzing the case. Um, but if an excisional biopsy of an inguinal axillary or cervical lymph node is possible, then I think that should definitely be discussed with the patient if it can happen promptly. So try not to accept the default FNA if we can, correct? Core would be better than an FNA and then excisional if ideal. Well, to that point, FNAs are generally approaches we'd prefer not to have to take. Right. Um, for conditions such as CLL or SLL, it's certainly not unreasonable to rely on that information um, to a certain degree. But for other conditions, namely diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, especially classical Hodgkin lymphoma, and some of the more esoteric subtypes of T-cell rich histiotype, largely B-cell lymphoma or others, then you really need the tissue architecture and an FNA cannot make that diagnosis, full stop. Gotcha. So if you don't know, try not to do an FNA if possible. So talking about those different subtypes and idiosyncrasies when it comes to the kind of lymphoma it is, let's go ahead and go straight into a pretty common lymphoma, right? Let's pretend or discuss a case of a newly diagnosed diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which actually was my first case when I entered fellowship on my first day. What pathology and genetic workup for somebody seeing a DLBCL, what it's otherwise known as, is needed to make the diagnosis as well as kind of determine what that first-line treatment is? It's a great question. And really, we've, for several decades now, have relied 
pretty heavily on immunohistochemistry to make the diagnosis of DLBCL. There's a range of markers to demonstrate that these are large clonal B cells and to help distinguish um, those cells from T cells and other immune cells in the lymph node. We don't have to go over the long list of markers. Several of them, however, are the targets of particular therapies that are antibody-based, such as CD19 or CD20. Um, but IHC is what really makes the diagnosis, which is supplemented, I should say, by flow cytometry, which helps establish the clonality of the disease since kappa and lambda restriction is, is an important part of the disease, but not essential to make the diagnosis. Fluorescence in situ hybridization, um, sort of getting into the biology of the disease, albeit not a genomic test, is commonly performed for MIC rearrangements, BCL6 rearrangements, and the IGH-BCL2 rearrangements. And these have implications for the patients in the long run. And some providers prefer to use uh, slightly more intensive therapies for double hit lymphomas, which is a WHO subclassification. But by and large, I would say patients don't need to wait for any NGS testing beyond what we've just discussed to initiate frontline therapy for DLBCL. I think even though there is extensive and really fascinating biology being uncovered by large NGS studies, such as by Margaret Ship's group at Dana-Farber, Lou Stout's group at the NCI, and a few others, even though we know more and more about the origins of DLBCL and the fact that it's probably several diseases that all appear similarly under the microscope, that information is not yet integrated into making frontline treatment decisions. Gotcha. That was very helpful. And you know, so like the MYD88, back when, from what I remember in training, sometimes you were saying like, does that need to be ordered? Does it not? Does it confuse the picture? How do you relate that? And when is it appropriate to test for it? Is it when you're on the fence about a diagnosis? Or is it on all kind of standard lymphomas that might be in that DLBCL mantle category? A range of low-grade lymphomas, including Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, definitely warrant testing from ID88, and in particular, the CXCR4 mutation. Um, but in DLBCL specifically, even though the presence or absence of certain mutations such as MyD88, TP53 alterations, EZH2 alterations, and others have modest prognostic value. They don't impact the treatments we decide. And in many series, especially in clinical trial settings, there's been heterogeneous, I should say, or sort of mixed magnitudes of these prognostic values, such that it's hard to know how to relate it to an individual patient. I think this is a good point to contrast DLBCL with many of our myeloid malignancies where very stereotypical chromosomal rearrangements such as complex carrier type AML as a contrasting example come with such a large magnitude of adverse risk. There really isn't such a NGS-based feature in DLBCL. The FISH findings, as I mentioned, make BCL6 and IGH BCL2 rearrangements do confer significant adverse risk, but um, the NGS testing alone does not provide such value in order to make treatment decisions quite yet. No, that's great. That's great to know because that's you know how we learned it classically for a probably better part of decade at least is that that's what matters that double and triple and the risk of you know recurrence or or refractory uh, response to treatments and when to maybe escalate to, to an academic center. So that's very reassuring. One other point I'll add is that there is emerging evidence that certain therapies are more active in certain biological subtypes of DLBCL, and in particular, the activated B-cell subtype or non-GCB, as it's sort of more colloquially referred to, may be preferentially responsive to regimens that include things like ibrutinib, a BTK inhibitor, or other members of that class, as well as bortezomib, which is a proteasome inhibitor, or other members of that class. And there have been large clinical trials to explore the addition of these agents to RCHOP, but none have been definitively positive enough to change the standard of care quite yet. And those would only be experimental approaches. So anything that's non-germinal cell is to at least consider 
you know, a reevaluation to see if that's been updated as we move forward into our practice. Excellent. So that's very, you know, again, reassuring and hopefully everyone listening can have a better idea of where we're headed in DOBCL, but also how things are done still traditionally uh, when it comes to evaluating the risk and the treatment decisions involved with mostly histopathology, IHC, and flow. So how about now we talk about a mantle cell case? How is that different than a DLBCL? And is the pathology and genetics workup similar to that in the sense of needing IHC and flow? Is there something that's like, ooh, don't miss this when it comes to NGS, when it comes to mantle cell? And what do those tests kind of like mean either therapeutically or prognostically? Yeah, there's two main buckets that I put the testing um, as far as the workup is concerned into. And the first one is looking for a canonical or a hallmark gene rearrangement that is the driver of the disease. And in probably 80 to 90% of cases, we're talking about the cyclin D1 translocation. Mm. Uh, that's T1114. And that is really a hallmark of this disease. And you'll have cyclin D1 expression by IHC as well. And those are two features that the pathologists really hang their hat on to give you that diagnosis. That does leave around 5 to 10% of mantle cell lymphoma cases without a cyclin D1 rearrangement, and those can be real struggles, even at specialty academic centers. And these are cases where sometimes sending out for NGS panels that include cyclin D2 or cyclin D3 rearrangements, often by RNA analyses, can be really helpful to help you distinguish between mantle cell lymphoma or CLL if the pathologists aren't clear. CLL, SLL, I should say. And so even though I wouldn't say this should be sent on all patients, but if you have a case that looks like and smells like and everything points to mantle cell lymphoma, and it would really impact what treatment you recommend, which is, I would say, the majority of cases of frontline mantle cell lymphoma patients would not receive the same treatment as CLL, of course, sending out um, an NGS panel that includes these other two rearrangements should be strongly considered. And I'd add that because mantle cell lymphoma, in contrast to DLBCL, is sort of slightly more a notch or two lower on the indolent to aggressive spectrum, your patients probably have the time to wait for that additional information, especially since it impacts the treatment so heavily. If it's going to take two or three weeks for that NGS panel to come back, that's often okay in mantle cell lymphoma. Obviously, treat the patient that's in front of you, not the hypothetical case. But I would say waiting two to three weeks for NGS and DLBCL, the, the juice is not worth the squeeze. And back to the second bucket, almost all patients need to have TP53 mutation testing and 17P deletion tested by FISH because these patients with these alterations with mantle cell lymphoma have unfortunately very poor prognoses and very short responses to frontline therapies such that patients often progress while on their frontline therapy, if not have a very short um, treatment-free interval after their first response. And thus, sequencing of therapies can be really important, understanding that uh, aggressive cytotoxic regimens are often not ideal for these patients, given the P53 aberrancy. And so referral to academic centers for clinical trials is really a high priority for these high-risk patients. Excellent. So, most are going to be in mantle cyclin D1. If it's not, consider two and three. And then definitely know if it's a, you know, 17P, TP53 mutated because those may, might be more challenging. And then you have to kind of protect that marrow reserve uh, and not hit it too hard with cytotoxics that may not work because of defunct TP53. So those are all kind of classified as non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Now let's talk about Hodgkin for a second. What about Hodgkin's do we need to know as far as, especially in the genomic or NGS sector? And is it still four subtypes like we kind of learned previously? Is there a fifth one? I don't know. Yeah, I, every year we uh, worry a little less about the subtypes of classical Hodgkin lymphoma and just keep that nodular lymphocyte predominant subtype uh, in, in its own other bucket as the WHO or the ICC classifies it, not even as 
a Hodgkin lymphoma moving forward potentially. Um, But I think just to keep it short and sweet that the Hodgkin Reed Sternberg cells in uh, a Hodgkin lymphoma mass only make up about 2% of the tumor cellularity, making NGS testing really, really difficult, even if it were helpful in designing patients' treatments. And so I think it's very simple to say that NGS is not appropriate for Hodgkin's biopsies um, in the current fashion that these tests are performed. And hopefully CTDNA assays, um, as have recently been presented and published at national meetings, will shed some interesting light into biology and hopefully help in terms of measurable residual disease testing as we look to intensify or de-escalate treatment based on patients' responses. Well, that's helpful to know that subtypes really mostly matter. You said if it's CD20 positive, correct? Exactly. That's the one that's maybe not even the Hodgkin's anymore. Okay, excellent. And then are there any other like genomic or genetic testing in lymphoma in general? I know that's a difficult question that really should be on our grids either now or moving forward to kind of think about if we see cases like this in the future. Yeah, I think there's a sort of a, a good list of slightly less common situations, but things to have in your uh, back pocket in terms of being able to prognosticate or pick a therapy for patients. So uh, follicular lymphoma, about 20% of cases have EZH2 mutations. And EZH2 biology is important to follicular lymphoma, whether or not it's mutated in that disease. And so there's recently been uh, the approval of the first-in-class EZH2 inhibitor tazemetastat, and other agents in this class are in the clinical trial pipeline. And so you can test patients with FL for EZH2 mutations, and that is predictive of response to this agent, 70 versus 30% for mutated versus wild-type patients. But the duration of responses and PFS is around 11 to 12 months, irrespective of the mutation status, just to keep in mind. Additionally, while not mutation testing for the pure biology or the pathogenesis of the disease, I think it's important to recall that T-cell receptor and B-cell receptor NGS testing for clonality can be really vital in complex cases where there's crushed architecture or very scant specimen, and the pathologist can't determine that it's a clonal process per se, but this can be done using molecular tools. We mentioned earlier the role for MID88 and CXCR4 testing in low-grade lymphoplasmocytic lymphomas to help both differentiate Waldenstrom's from other conditions, as well as to, uh, to be slightly predictive of responses or lack thereof to a brutinib. There's some additional fish markers to consider for T-cell lymphoma cases. Um, beyond that common ALK rearrangements, you can look for TP63. That's not 53, that's 63 in this case, and DUST22, uh, which have significant prognostic roles. And then finally, I think we're all very excited for MRD testing to make its way into the lymphoma world. The ClonoSeq assay, which is an immunoglobulin-based CTDNA assay, was recently approved um, for use in DLBCL. And while it's not integrated into standard management processes, there are certain use cases where I think it might be helpful for uh, FDG masses that are not safely biopsyable, for instance, to assess assess for residual disease, and hopefully targeted sequencing panel-based CTDNA assays such as CAPSeq or PhasedSeq are coming around the bend in the next year or two. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the you know, anxiety that presents after treating someone and hopefully getting a nice induction and remission and to not be able to know and kind of go biopsy anything you see, instead replaced by uh, minimal residual disease testing in the blood and actually both be reassuring and also get prompt treatment if the case is where there's a recurrence to hopefully still salvage that. Well, Dr. Russell Germain, we really appreciate you being here. Uh, I've learned a lot. Never knew there was a TP63, so that's that's something new as well. 
Um, and anybody, everyone listening, we want to thank you for listening to this episode of Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies, which was a discussion about lymphoma therapeutic testing. We hope that you found this discussion informative and engaging. And please tune in to our other podcast episodes for insightful discussions about ALL, AML, MDS, CLL, and myeloma. We're going to kind of do these rapid fire reviews to hopefully keep you afloat. And you can find a full list of podcast episodes at hematology.org as well as lls.org. Thanks very much. 